Amen. All right. Welcome. Uh, if you've got a Bible, let's go to Luke uh, chapter 4. And let me kind of set it up uh, uh, this way, I guess. One of the things that, that, that I feel like I've grown in, and I guess my convictions have changed, and I think it's just been an improvement over the years when it comes to preaching, is just seeing and trying to preach Jesus uh, from all the Bible, you know, preaching Jesus from the Old Testament. And, uh, I mean, I gave an example of this even, I think, last week, like with the, the or two weeks ago, the David and Goliath story and how people, you know, often preach things, you know, moralistically instead of Christ-centered when it comes to the Old Testament. But honestly, that can happen with the New Testament too, particularly the Gospels. I mean, you know, you can preach the New Testament in a gospel-less moralistic kind of way. So an, an example of this would be, and this will, this will connect to the passage we're going to look at today because I think uh, this happens a lot with this passage. I've kind of been guilty of it in, in, in the past, I think, and I want you to maybe see this in a little different way today as we look at this temptation narrative and see you know, the actual interpretation of it. Now, in a couple of weeks, uh, Luis from Honduras is going to preach next Sunday. I get to relax and be the baptism minister next Sunday. So, uh, But we'll talk about some of the applications when it comes to us resisting temptation. But I want you to see that this passage today is about Jesus. But, you know, Robin and I went to Hawaii last year uh, through Carson Newman. And, you know, everybody jokes, it was just a vacation. Well, it was fun, but uh, they're going there on a mission trip in the spring, so there was some actual work done on this trip. But one of the things we want to do there, because of, of the Micronesian, you know, congregation that we work with in, in Morristown, which they're, uh, and this is an exciting thing, they're, they're constituting as a church on December the 10th. It'll be the first Southern Baptist Micronesian congregation in the state of Tennessee. So uh, that, that's, that's a cool thing. But, but because of that connection, and we knew that that there's Micronesian population in we kind of went, in Morristown in Hawaii. We wanted to meet some of them, so we went to one of their church services. And, and, and the guy that was preaching uh, f- for them, uh, he like pastored a couple of congregations, and he, he was preaching through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. And it was like a great message and a terrible message all at the same time. I don't know if you've ever heard sermons like that, but it, it was great and terrible at the same time in the sense that he was very well prepared. He'd obviously studied a lot. He was a good speaker. He had a PowerPoint presentation. You know, he's going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark. And they were in, at the story at the end of Mark chapter 10. Remember the story of blind Bartimaeus, the, the, the beggar? And, and that's what he was preaching. And he was preaching uh, through that. And again, it was very well presented. He's an excellent speaker. But there were two problems with, that, with the message that made it terrible with all those great things. One... He entirely missed the point of the passage, which is the worst thing you can do when you're a preacher. Unless maybe the worst thing is, he completely left Jesus out of the passage. His message was how to have a ministry to homeless people. And and the only time he talked about Jesus was when he spent maybe like 30, 60 seconds sharing the gospel at the end of it. And so he's preaching the gospel in the gospels, leaving Jesus out of it. And honestly, 
I think that's what happens a lot of times with this passage about the, the temptation of Jesus. Scott McKnight says this. He says, we may need some re-education on how to read the narrative about Jesus' test or temptations. In particular, our divining secrets for how best to resist temptation in our life blunts the power of this short narrative about Jesus in the wilderness with the devil. In fact, it removes it from God's plan of salvation into a kind of moralism. Again, I think it's a legitimate application, and we'll make this application in part two of this message in a couple of weeks, but it's not the interpretation. He says, uh, this passage is not about us, it's about Jesus. It reveals something about Jesus, that he is the Son of God, and as the Son of God, he is tested in the wilderness as Israel was tested in the wilderness, with one colossal difference. Israel failed over and over while Jesus proved faithful three times. Jesus, Luke tells us, was full of the Holy Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Luke wants us to know this is a divinely appointed event that a contest takes place between God's Son and the arch rival of God, the devil, that Jesus needed the power of the Spirit to accomplish the Father's mission. Now, it's an interesting passage. I mean, this wilderness was an incredibly desolate place. Jesus had been alone. He had been fasting. And then they have a conversation. I don't know, you know, if like somebody was doing a movie script of this, this is not how they're going to write it, right? This is not like the Marvel storyline here. But, but it's what happened. And the idea is, that the, the big picture of it is that Jesus, the Son of God, has won the war. And so that as we face battles in our lives, we can fight them out of that victory. You know, again, if you just want to turn this into like principles and strategies for overcoming temptation, listen, when we're in the battles of life, when we're facing temptation, when we're in difficult uh, circumstances, when we're uh, battling the internal struggles that we all have, uh, principles and strategies are nice, but we need a person. We need power uh, to help us to overcome these things. And, and that's where Jesus comes into this because since he overcame temptation, he can forgive us. He can help us when we're tempted. So let, let's read the passage. But um, to really get the passage, we, we got to get it in its context. And remember, there's not chapter, verse, divisions in the Bible. And so uh, it really, it flows with Luke chapter 3. Just a couple things I want to point out to you there. The end of verse 22. The Father said to the Son, You're my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. You are my beloved Son. That connects to this passage. And then at the end of the genealogy in chapter 3, verse 38, remember he's called the Son of Adam. So you have Jesus, the Son of God, the son of Adam, doing battle with Satan, Lucifer, fallen angel, created being, powerful, not on the same level as God, though. And so with that set up, it says, chapter 4, verse 1, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And I don't know about you, but when I'm hungry, that's one of the times that I'm susceptible. 
Uh, you know, there's certain things you got to watch out for. Tired, hungry, stressed. Uh, you know, those are those times. But so it says, the devil said to him, if, and, and honestly, uh, if, it should be translated, it could be translated since. He's actually not questioning the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, the Bible says even the demons believe and tremble. He knew who Jesus was. He was what he was tempting him to do was to misuse his position as the Son of God. So if or since you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking up him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered, answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And, and, and just as an aside, th- this, this verse actually is evidence for the deity of Christ. And this is why I say this. At one time I was call, talking to a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses. And, um, you know, of course, they don't believe that Jesus is God. And so, uh, but I took him to this verse and I said, you know, who's this talking about? You should worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Of course, they're going to say Jehovah. And then I went to Hebrews 1.6 where, where it says that God said to the angels when he brought his firstborn into the world, let all the angels worship him. And, and I said, if God is commanding all the angels to worship Jesus, but the Bible says you should worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve, the only logical conclusion of that is that Jesus actually is God. And they said, we'll have to get back to you on that. <laughs> but I never heard from them, so you might want to try that sometime. But um, so it, it shows not only you know, the deity of the Father, it shows the deity of the Son. It, but it, it says, then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, which is a really high point, and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And it says, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And so I think the main idea of this is that we can trust Jesus, the Son of God, Because he triumphed over Satan by overcoming every temptation and then ultimately defeating him on the cross. Again, we want to take every text in the words of Charles Spurgeon, make a beeline to the cross. And this is easy to do here because honestly, the cross would have meant nothing if Jesus had not defeated Satan here, had not overcome temptation here, and in every other moment of his life, because to be able to be the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God, atoning for our sins, he had to be what? Sinless. So it all ends up connecting together. So there's really three things that I want you to see in in this narrative as we walk through these verses this morning. I want you to see the tempter, The temptations, and we'll look at the nature of the temptations. And then the main point that I really want you to see is the triumphant Savior. First of all, the tempter. Satan, the devil, again, Lucifer, fallen angel. Uh, You know, he's not God's equal, but he's powerful. 
uh, you know, a, a mighty angel. So what, what do we see here about him? Well, we see that he's real. Right? You know, Satan wants people either to disbelieve his existence or blame everything in the world on him and take no responsibility for themselves. But, you know, many people are going to deny the reality of Satan. But if the Bible has any integrity at all, he's got to be real. I mean, again, how do you trust Jesus when Jesus talked about it? He said, you know, behold, saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I mean, if Jesus is our Lord, we believe what he believed, and he believed the devil uh, was real. You know, I read a story one time about a, a boxer who was getting just destroyed in a boxing match, and he's trying to get his corner man to throw in the towel, and they're trying to give him a motivational speech. They're like, oh, he's not even touching you. And uh, the, the boxer wipes away blood from his eye and like says, well, the referee must be hitting me then because somebody's killing me out here. And, you know, when people, you know, disbelieve the reality of Satan, it's like, you know, I read about a law enforcement official who was raised to believe in the devil, and then as he got, he became an adult, he kind of became skeptical. But then after a few years in law enforcement, he's just like, man, if there's no devil, where's all this evil coming from? He's real. He's powerful. I mean, we see implications of this in this text, but at the same time, he's limited. You know, think about the Job passage. He, he can only do what God allows him uh, to do. He's not sovereign. He's not the ruler of the universe. As he has power. You know, he has authority over the kingdoms of this uh, earth, this world's fallen system. But it's limited. It's really delegated uh, in, 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 some, in some sense. And, and it's coming to an end someday. We know that he's a liar and a deceiver who wants to destroy. We see him doing this in this passage. And Jesus said that you know, he's a liar. He's, he, he's a murderer. You know, he's come to steal, to kill, and, 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 and destroy. So, so there is a, a, a tempter. But you know, we can't really ultimately blame our sins on the devil because the Bible says that we're enticed and led away by our own desires. That's why we sin. Satan can't make us do anything, couldn't make Jesus do anything, but he tried. So let's look at the temptations. There's three temptations here. And so the first temptation in verses 3 and 4 was for Jesus to use his power outside of the will of God to meet his own needs. To use his power outside the will of God to meet his own needs. Again, look at what the text says. He says, if or since you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. So, so think about it. What, really what he's doing here, it's very subtle. Again, it's often taught, if you're the Son of God, it's, you know, he's challenging his identity. No, it's more subtle than that. He's saying, since you're the Son of God, you shouldn't be hungry. You've got all this power. You could turn this stone into bread. You shouldn't be hungry. God's not taking care of you. Just take care of yourself. Kind of like back in the garden, essentially what he told Adam and Eve, God's holding back on you. There's something more. I've got something better for you. 
But Jesus responded by quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3 and says, It is written, you know, when you read that in the New Testament, it is written. It means it's an Old Testament quotation, so just run it. Uh, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Warren Wiersbe explains it this way. He says, It's better to be hungry in the will of God than satisfied out of the will of God. Of course, we, you know, there's pleasure in sin for a season, but we're not ultimately going to find satisfaction outside the will of God. He says, when our Lord quoted Deuteronomy 8.3, he put the emphasis on the word man. As the eternal son of God, he had the power to do anything, but as the humble son of man, he had authority to do only that which the Father willed. As the servant, Jesus did not use his divine attributes for selfish purposes. Because he was man, he hungered, but he trusted the Father to meet his needs in his own time and his own way. And, and, and that's the temptation here. See, physical needs aren't wrong. It, it's actually a heretical asceticism to think that the body's evil or the physical, true, God-given needs are wrong. But when it becomes sinful, it's when we meet those needs in ungodly ways or that we view happiness as coming from satisfying uh, and gratifying our fleshly desires instead of doing the will of God. And when we do that, what are we doing? We're living by bread alone instead of the, the Word of God. So Satan was tempting Jesus, and he tempts us, to separate from the, the physical from the spiritual and to prioritize the physical over the spiritual. It's all the time sex, it's biological function, a legitimate God-given drive. But it becomes sinful when it's used outside the bonds of faithful, monogamous, heterosexual marriage. Food. God created us to need uh, food. It's, it's a good gift to receive, be received from the Lord. But you know, when we become a, a, a glutton uh, and, and you know, we start harming our, our bodies, then it becomes sinful. You know, Beauty. God created things to be beautiful, but we can turn that into vanity and pride. You know, music is a gift from God you know, for our souls and to glorify him, but it can be turned you know, into something that you know, clouds, hurts our minds, and doesn't glorify him. So there's many things that we can want and desire that are okay in and of themselves, but it's when we begin to use them in the wrong way. So that's the first temptation. Here's the second temptation in verses 5 and 8. The second temptation was basically, the easiest way to say it was to take a shortcut. It was to seek glory apart from the cross by worshiping Satan. So when it says here, then the devil taking him up on a high mountain showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment and said, all this authority I will give to you and their glory for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Again, Satan is not the sovereign ruler of the universe. Only God is. He's not on the same level. But in, in, in the fall and you know, we're fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil, the world is this world system. Satan is the Lord over that. He's, he's ruling a kingdom in, in opposition to God. It's going to be crushed someday. All of this ultimately belongs to Jesus. But when he claimed it back, when he reversed the effects of the fall was supposed to be in his cross and resurrection, but, but Satan's tempting him, go ahead, just take the easy way. I'll give it to you now. You don't have to go to the cross. I'll give you all this glory. And again, Jesus responded by quoting Scripture. He quoted from Deuteronomy 6.13. 
Dwight Pentecost explains this as this was a subtle imitation of what God the Father promised to the Son is declared in Psalm 2. God's will was to bring the Son to a throne, but by way of the cross. The devil implied that Jesus might have what the Father promised without going to the cross under the condition that he bow down and worship him. Psalm 2, 6-8 through 8 says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. It belonged to him, but how did he claim it? Luke 24, 26, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and then to enter into his glory? In other words, Suffering, then glory. Suffering, then glory. And so Satan was trying to get him to take a shortcut. He tries to get us to take a shortcut. He promises glory without suffering today if we'll do it his way. But remember the context. Remember when Jesus called Peter Satan and said, Get behind me, Satan? Remember why he did it? It was because Jesus was saying, I'm about to be crucified. And Peter rebuked him. And remember the verse after uh, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. He said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Anything that avoids or minimizes the cross is of the devil. It's a satanic shortcut. And shortcuts can be deadly. One of the most infamous events in, 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 the, in the history of, uh, of the United States uh, is the Donner Party. In 1846, a group of about 81 people were immigrating uh, along the Oregon Trail trying to go to California. They got behind schedule, and so they stopped at Fort Badger, Wyoming, and uh, they, they met a guy by the name of Lanford Hastings uh, who told them about something called the Hastings Cutoff that he promised them would cut 300 miles off their journey, help them make up time, <clears throat> make it easier, all these kind of things. Only problem was he had never actually traveled it. And it, it, it came from a man by the name of John Fremont who had traveled it, but he did it on horseback, which was possible but extremely difficult because he almost died doing it. But it was completely impossible for it to be done in wagons. But then also as they were behind, snow fell early that year. They got trapped in those mountains. Almost half of them died. It was a miracle that any of them died, uh, that survived. And really, just by some heroic rescue attempts, uh, they survived. But some of the survivors, at least, resorted to cannibalism to stay alive. A shortcut brought death. Do you understand, if Jesus had taken a shortcut here, all of us would be eternally dead. And when we take shortcuts in our lives... The wages of sin is death. The third temptation was for Jesus to tempt God by forcing him to fulfill his promise of protection. So it says in verse 9, you know, they came to Jerusalem, go to the pinnacle of the temple. And he says, if or since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. So it's like, okay, since you're the Son of God, he's got to protect you. So you know, just show it off. 
And then he even quotes, or he sort of quotes, he kind of misquotes Scripture here, leaves a part of it out. Uh, so the devil is quoting Scripture here. And, and he quotes from the 91st Psalm and, and says, and basically what the implication is, just take this jump, listen to me, God's got to protect you. So again, just because somebody is sharing the Bible, you can twist Scripture, you can misinterpret it, you can misapply it, you can leave things out. You know, people who don't believe the Bible quote the Bible. I mean, uh, you know, you've heard me talk about some of my experience at Carson Newman before. Uh, I had a philosophy professor named Don Olive, who when we were talking about, you know, how do you resolve the question of God being love and God being all-powerful at the same time, he just said, well, God's not all-powerful. God's not omnipotent or omniscient or, all, uh, or uh, omnipresent. But the Bible says the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Uh, I had another professor, Carolyn Blevins, who said, you don't have to believe in the fundamentals of the faith to be a Christian. You don't have to believe in the, in, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, to be a Christian. All you have to do is to confess Jesus is Lord. You know how nuts that is? Romans 10, 9 says, if you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Why does she get to pick half of that verse to say this is how you get saved? But this is what people do with the Bible. Now, this would have looked like a great act of faith. But Jesus quoted Scripture again, Deuteronomy 6.16. It says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And that's what he would have been doing. You know, we can do stuff like this. You know, we can say... Well, you know, my days are numbered, written in a book, so I'm going to live as God wants me to live. And then, but if you drive 120 miles an hour, you're tempting God. You say, well, you know, God's ordained my days, so I'm going to live as long as he wants me to live. But if you eat McDonald's and Krispy Kreme every day, you're tempting God. It's, it's misusing the promises of God. And we do that in a lot of different ways. I think that's the thing I was most convicted about uh, studying this passage this week. I've done that a lot of ways and a lot of uh, times, I, I think, over the course of my life. So these were the temptations that he hurled at Jesus. But in every one of them, Jesus stood firm on the Word of God, living for the glory of God, and he triumphed. He is our triumphant Savior. Scott Knight again, I think he summarizes this really well. He says, baptized and announced as son, he is tested as son. As the faithful son, he can now go public and enter into his kingdom ministry of revealing, healing, teaching, and preaching, and then experience death and resurrection for us so that we can enter into redemption. But we can be redeemed only because Jesus was the faithful Son of God. You say, why would the, why would the Father lead him by the Spirit to go out and experience these temptations? That's why. He, he wasn't doing it just so Jesus was, would get tempted. He was doing it to prove, to demonstrate, because he knew he was the faithful Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And he was going to demonstrate this. And he was going to defeat the devil and show his power and his authority and, and, and confirm his ability to be our Savior. See, I, we look at this as Satan being on the offensive here. I think it was actually Jesus was, that was on the offensive here. And, and so, uh, to, to conclude this, I want us to go to Hebrews chapter 2.
because, like I said at the beginning, this has to connect to the cross. He won this battle so he can win the war, so that we can live out of his victory. Uh, J.D. Greer puts it this way, the dew of the Christian life begins at the finish line of Jesus' done. And his done is the fact that he lived a perfect sinless life and then he went to the cross atoning for all of our sins. So what this means then for us is that, number one, Jesus defeated the devil, so we are victorious in Christ. Look at Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. It says, "...inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood..." He likewise himself shared in the same, he became one of us, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Uh, listen, Satan's a defeated foe. It's kind of like the, you know, the War of 1812. The biggest battle was fought after uh, the peace treaty had been signed. The peace treaty was signed on the cross. Uh, Satan's still fighting. He's not banished yet until the return of Christ. But he is a defeated foe. We're victorious in Christ. He's taken the keys of death, hell, and the grave. We don't have to fear uh, death anymore. G. Campbell Morgan's put it this way. Remember, I said he's the son of God. He's the son of Adam. Think about it this way. He says, The significance of the temptation may be seen by placing the whole of the facts in contrast with the account of the temptation of Adam. The devil challenged the first man. The second man, the second Adam, challenged the devil. The devil ruined the first Adam. The last Adam spoiled the devil. The first Adam involved the race in his defeat. The last Adam included the race in his victory. The first Adam stood as the head of the race and falling, dragged the race down with him. The last Adam stood as the head of the new race and being victorious, lifted that race with him. The second man had not only to resist temptation when it assailed him for his own sake, but he had to lay hold of the tempter and defeat him and punish him for the wrong that he did in the ruin of the first man. And because Jesus did that, remember we looked at a couple of weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 15, as an Adam and, and all, for as an Adam all die and Christ all will be made alive. Well, the end of that chapter, it says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus won here. And we share in that victory. Listen, we may struggle in some of the battles, but he's won the war and we're in him and we can live and we can fight and we can battle and we can wrestle with temptation and our struggles and our sin out of that. Second, look at verse 17. Jesus overcame temptation. So even when we have or we do give in to temptation, he is atoned for our sins. Listen, if we were perfect, maybe some principles and some strategies would, would be all that we need. But since we're so imperfect, what we need is a Savior. We need forgiveness. We needed it before we were saved. We need it every day as believers. Look at what Hebrews 2.17 says. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. What's that mean? He had to be fully human. He had to be fully tempted. Listen, think about it. He was out in the wilderness going through all this for me and you. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest 
in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, which means an atoning, wrath-absorbing sacrifice for the sins of the people. That's what Jesus did for us. I mean, he did it on the cross, but in every part of our life. Remember, we looked at it in his baptism. Why did he, John was a baptism of repentance. Jesus never had to repent. Why? He was repenting in our place. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's sweating great, great, great drops of blood as he bows his will to the Father. On the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of this is so he could make the sacrifice for our sins. And then third, Jesus overcame temptation. So when we are tempted, he is able to help us. Look at verse 18. For that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. C.S. Lewis wrote this. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. Right? Isn't that obvious? For example, David Price has run a marathon. He knows fully what it's like to run a marathon. I have no idea. Most I've ever done is a 5K. And I don't ever want to do that again. So, I, I know what it's like to run about 10% of a marathon. I don't know the full effect of it, but he does because he went all the way. Lewis goes on and says, A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. You know what this means then? This means since Jesus is the only one who's ever fully resisted temptation, he's the only one who's ever fully experienced it then. Because when you give in, the temptation stops. And so he's the only one who fully understands it. So when we're tempted, he's the one we can run to. You know, the good news is that even when we don't avail ourselves of his help, because he's our Savior and a merciful and a faithful high priest, when we sin, he's the one that we can run to. He's the answer to it all. Because why? Because he defeated the devil in the wilderness. And every other time. And then he defeated him on the cross. I don't know how many of you remember Rich Mullins, the, the Christian recording artist from back in the 80s, 90s. He was killed in a car wreck. Um, he, he talked about, um, you know, as he traveled, like battling sexual temptation. And one time being in Amsterdam and, and being especially tempted in the fact that if he hadn't had someone traveling with him, he would have probably given in to it. But he's like laying in bed awake and wanting this other guy to go to sleep. And he's just wrestling with it. And, and he wrote one of his most famous songs, Hold Me Jesus, out of that context. And there's a verse of it that, that says, And I wake up in the night and feel the dark. It's so hot inside my soul. I swear there must be blisters on my heart. So hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaking like a leaf. You have been my king of glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? 
And the good news is that whenever we're tempted, whenever we're struggling, whatever the circumstance is, whatever the battle is, Jesus overcame and he died for our sins and we can go to him and we can be shaking and hurting and struggling and wrestling, but he'll hold us. He'll be our Prince of Peace. He is our great high priest. He's there for us. Listen, let's run to him. Again, we need to learn things about how to overcome temptation and all these kinds. But what really what we ultimately need, we need a Savior. We need a faithful and merciful high priest, and his name is Jesus. My question is, have you ever run to him? Have you come to him and met him? Is he your Savior? Is he forgiven you? As a Christian, are you fighting the battles through him? Are you trying to do it on your own? When you fall, when you struggle, are you running back to him? Because what Satan wants to do, you know, Satan tempts us on the front end. He accuses us on the back end. You're not worthy. You're no good. There's no way you could really be a Christian. You're not really a child of God. God couldn't love you if you act like this. But all of that was settled. Remember what we talked about in the baptism passage? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But he crushed, he cursed, he poured out on his wrath. His wrath on His beloved uh, Son so that we could become beloved sons and daughters of God, forgiven, accepted, uh, beloved in Him through the cross based on what Jesus has done for us, His performance and not our performance. Will you trust Him? Let's bow our heads and, and close our eyes.